Good morning. Merry Christmas. Uh, as AJ just said, my name is Jonathan Suggs. I'm a Generation Link resident here at the church. I'm also the Young Adult Ministry Coordinator, so I spend most of my time hanging out with young adults and spend most of my time talking about dating and marriage. That just comes with the age stage of life. Uh, if you haven't met me, you've probably met my wonderful wife, Hannah. She, uh, we got married two and a half years ago, and uh, so basically we're veterans at this point now in marriage. You know, we, we don't argue anymore. No, not, not really. Uh, but we, we got married in May of 2019, and shortly after, we started attending here at Siddle Square. And on behalf of us, I just want to say thank you all for how you've welcomed us and accepted us and treated us like family. We, we tell people often that we came to Siddle Square because, uh, for the preaching, really, but we ended up staying because we found family here. And so thank you all for how you brought us in and, and loved on us. Uh, I'm also in seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and uh, it's a great school, I love it, but I also love being on break, which I am right now, and that is really nice for a multitude of reasons, one of which is because in seminary you read a ton of books and you write a ton of papers, and one of the things that I love being able to do on break is just read the things that I want to read. One of those over the past few days is a book called Pilgrim's Progress by a guy named John Bunyan, not any relation to Paul Bunyan, very different, guys. but Pilgrim's Progress, and I've been listening to it on audiobook. And as I've been prepping for this message and thinking about this passage we're going to be in today, uh, there was a particular scene that stuck out to me. And I want to kind of frame it for you. So in the story, you have a main character named Christian. And he's on a pilgrim's journey onto, to the celestial city. And by this point in the story, he's made it to the celestial city. But his wife and his kids behind realize what a grave mistake they've made by not following and coming along with him. And so they decide to go and join him in the celestial city. So they fall after him, follow after him. And along their journey, they get to a place called the interpreter's house. And there there's a man called the interpreter where he takes them through multiple scenes and shows them what kind of things they're going to expect on their journey. And they come to one particular scene where you see a man whose face is fixed permanently towards the ground. And in his hands is a muckrake. And he's just raking dirt and leaves and straw But above him is another man, and he's holding a crown above his head. And if only the man would look up, he would see the treasure and the riches that he's searching so hard for in the dirt. And I think the obvious application to that is for those who aren't Christians, that if we could just trade in our labor for what's already been done in Christ, we could just look up and see the riches of Christ offered to us by faith. But I think there's also an application for us here as Christians, as the church, that we have received this crown. We've received abundant and wonderful riches in Christ. And yet for one reason or another, for multiple reasons, we can tend to lose sight of that. Maybe it's tremendous suffering that you've been through in your life that you never expected would come, that have drawn your eyes away from the riches of Christ Maybe inward, inwardly, focusing, why am I enduring such hardships? What has God got out for me? Or maybe it's the same sin patterns that you continue to fall into. It's the same temptations that continue to trip you up, that have drawn your eyes away from God, thinking he certainly can't love me. There's no way. Look what I've done. Even since I've been a Christian, look what I've done. But regardless, all of us even go through this on a day-to-day basis, don't we? Because how long does it take after we close our Bibles in the morning 
before we're filled with anxiety and fear and maybe even depression? I mean, how long is it before we leave this building after worshiping God that we, it seems like our theology just ups and walks away out of our minds and we just forget everything that, that we are in Christ? It doesn't take long. And we all, all of us experience this. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, there's a pew Bible. It should be right in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love for you to have that one. Use it. And uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. What I want to show you from this passage is that we as Christians can rejoice at all times, that no matter what it is that seems to steal our joy or distract us from the riches of Christ, pale in comparison to what we've been given. And in the terms of the title of this message, the fruits of our justification are far superior to the things that seem to trip us up, to the things that seem to steal our joy on a day-to-day basis. So that's what Paul wants to show us in this passage, that we can rejoice at all times because of the amazing fruits of justification. All right, so I'm going to pray and ask God for help, and then we're going to dive in. Father, I thank you. Thank you for this opportunity that we get to spend time in your word. I thank you for your church, your bride, that you've chosen for yourself, that you've died for, that you love so dearly and that you care so much about. I thank you that you care about our holiness that you care to make us more and more like Christ. I thank you that you would even speak to us through your word, God. I ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would guide our time, that you would give us the grace that we need to see you, to know you, to behold you, to rejoice in you. Be with our time. Help us to become more and more like Christ this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Romans 5. Let's go ahead and dive in. Starting there in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now you can see by Paul's first few words that we're jumping into a mid-conversation. It's as if Paul's been on the phone and we just walked into the room. In order to understand all that we're going to look at today, we got to understand what's kind of come before it, okay? So you can see from verse 1 that he's talking about this idea of being justified. So what is that? If we could really boil down the whole message of these first few chapters of Romans into one word, it would be this word, justification. So I want to show you what what kind of going on in Paul's mind at this point. Flip back to chapter 3 in Romans, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 25 there. And let me just catch you up to that point. Uh, In chapter 1, Paul is dead set on revealing the unrighteousness, the natural unrighteousness of man before God because of our sin. So in chapter 1, he points to the Gentiles, and those are anyone who's not Jews. And he says that you're unrighteous because you've exchanged the glory of God. In other words, you've worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And then in chapter 2, he points his fingers to the Jews. And he says you're unrighteous because although you have the law of God, you don't obey it. And because of you, actually, God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of your lack of obedience and your lack of love for God. And then when we get to chapter 3, in case anyone feels like they might have squeezed through the cracks and made it out alive, Paul makes it abundantly clear that no one is righteous. Not one. And at this point in the book of Romans, every single person should just put a hand over their mouth. Because there's nothing that we could do at all to justify ourselves before God on our own. We don't bring anything to the table. 
But it's right here that Paul gives the good news of justification by faith alone. Look at verse 22, chapter 3 of Romans. It says, the righteousness of God. We could say the righteousness from God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. So in short, to be justified simply means this. It's to be pardoned of your sin before God and to be counted righteous by faith in Jesus. Okay, and he explains this more and he teases out more through two Old Testament examples in chapter four of Abraham and David. And if there are two people that the Jews look to the most, it would be those guys. You could add in Moses. But, but Paul particularly goes to these two guys to show that this is a, a theme throughout the Old Testament. This is actually how all people have um, arrived at salvation, arrived at justification throughout all times. And then if you would like a more full-orbed understanding of this, you could look even in your bulletin. We put our statement of faith on justification right there in the bulletin for you to read. Um, but just for our footing for today, just think justification is being pardoned of our sin counted righteous before God, okay? But we're not primarily trying to just take a deep dive into justification itself today. We want to see what comes of this new status. What are the fruits that come out of this? What riches do we have in Christ? Okay, so for that, let's keep going in Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's our first fruit of justification, that we have peace with God. Now, when Paul talks about this peace with God, he's not primarily talking about a, an inner subjective feeling of peace. And he talks about that in Philippians 4 when he talks about the peace of God that transcends all understanding. But here he's talking about peace with God. This is what characterizes our relationship with him. Right? That where there was once enmity and hostility and alienation because of our unrighteousness before God, now there's real, genuine peace. Now, although this is objective peace, this should still transition into a subjective feeling, right? Because whether we subconsciously or consciously thought about it, all of us lived in fear of God's wrath. And now, it's what one theologian calls the sweet quiet of the soul. That now when there's real, objective peace, there's just quiet in our soul. And that should do something inside of our heart, shouldn't it? And because this peace is rooted in our justification, it can't go away. It can't fade away. Nothing can take this from us. Nothing can take the peace we have with God from us. You can no more lose your peace with God than you could be unjustified. Or let me say it like this, you could no more lose your peace with God than Christ could be uncrucified. It's that secure, it's that stable. So that's our first fruit. And I wish we could just pull the car over and just look at the Grand Canyon on these and just dive in, but we don't have time. So let's keep going. The second fruit of, the, of justification that we have is found in verse two. Through him, that's Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace. Now this, uh, this reality here is just is staggering to me. Uh, let me just tease this out. Access in the Old Testament is completely foreign, outside of a select few. 
And, and the greatest picture I could think of giving this to you is with the temple and tabernacle structure. Just if the temple communicated anything, it was that God wanted to be near his people. And yet, because he is holy and we are unrighteous, there had to be separation. There had to be barriers between us. We couldn't enjoy full communion with God on our own. And so all of us here, I think all, most of us here would be Gentiles, non-Jews. All of us could only go so far as the outer court of the temple called the, the court of Gentiles. And they were very original with their names here. Um, you could go a little bit farther if you were a Jewish woman and you could go into the, you guessed it, the, the court of women. And then to go even farther, you had to be a Jewish man. But even then, you couldn't make it into the temple itself. To get into the temple, you had to be a priest from the tribe of Levi, one of 12 tribes. To even then, you couldn't still get into the actual physical presence of God found in the Holy of Holies. To get there, you had to be a high priest from the tribe of Levi. But even then, you could only approach God once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest slaughtered the lamb and took the blood and poured it over the mercy seat for the atonement of God's people. But even then, even if you got to do that, there was no guarantee that you wouldn't be struck dead on the spot. And so they would tie bells and a rope to their ankles so that whenever the bell stopped, they knew, oh, well, he was struck dead, and they would whip him out. That's how little access we had before God. But of course, we know that when Christ was crucified, that the curtain in the temple separating God and the Holy of Holies from all people was torn from top to bottom. Meaning that all types of people could come to God now if they were counted as righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of access we now have before God, that we can approach him. But it gets even better. Look again in verse two. So we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we definitely don't have the access like a high priest does, where he could only come once a year. But in a sense, we now live in the Holy of Holies with God himself. That's the kind of access we have. We can bring any concern, any doubt, any question, any praise, any glory to God, to him at any time. Just think about what, how your life might look different if this reality was going through your minds as you wake up in the morning, as you're faced with two good decisions, where can you go? You can go to God. You can go to your Father who accepts you now in His presence. When you're confronted with your sin and your suffering in your life, the first place you can now go is to God the Father whom you have unlimited access to. But when it says that we stand in His grace now, notice that this is also objective. Just as our peace with God will not fade, neither will this. It's not as if you have been given access to God by faith, but now you stand by your own works. <laughs> that would make a mockery of God's grace, wouldn't it? As if he's unwilling or unable to finish what he started. No, but if you have access to God by grace, you stand in grace. That is a firm footing, something you can stand on your entire life, and something that will carry you even through death itself. That's how firm that is. So, so far we have peace with God and we have access and standing in his grace. Let's look at the third fruit of justification. The end of verse two. It says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You might have heard if you've grown up in church that hope in the Bible is not 
uh, so much of a desire that may or may not happen. Like, I, I really hope Jonathan finishes his sermon early because we got lunch to get to. And that's, that's just a desire, and that's a bad one, so don't even think it, okay? And I wouldn't guarantee it because this might go along. Uh, but when it talks about hope, it's talking about a certainty. It's talking about an assurance that we have as Christians. It's literally something that was accomplished in the past that continues to have results in the present and that we're waiting to really fully receive in the end. Okay, that's the idea of hope. So when I was in middle school, my mom would start wrapping presents about a week in advance and start putting them under the tree. And when no one was around, I would go up and I'd start looking at the tags and I'd see, okay, which ones have my name on it? Whenever I found one that had my name on it, I'll take a mental note, be like, okay, that present is mine. But I couldn't receive it yet, could I? I couldn't enjoy it in its fullness. That whole week still leading up, I knew that those presents were mine and I still had to wait to fully enjoy them. But I had a certainty, I had a quiet assurance in my heart that I was gonna get those presents. Paul says we have an assurance, we have, an assertain, we have a certainty. In what? In the glory of God, in the future glory of God. This is a, a phrase that Paul uses often to give the idea that we are going to actually share in God's glory. Can you imagine that? That we would share in God's glory, that he would make us holy and blameless and above reproach and perfect in his presence? And how do we know? It's because we've been justified. Paul makes this connection abundantly clear later in chapter eight when he says that uh, those whom he has predestined, he has also called. And those whom he's called, he's also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Notice it's in the past tense. In Paul's mind, your glorification, your sharing in God's glory is so sure, so secure, that it's as if it's already happened. It's as good as done. You're going to share in God's glory. And we can, Paul says, that's reason to rejoice. Now, at this point in the passage, um, I'm gonna tell you that we're going to see even greater things than this, and it's gonna be awesome. But before we get there, maybe there's something already going on in your mind. Maybe you're thinking, this is great, but how does this really face up? How does this really hold up against the hard experiences of life? Because Christians, let's be honest. When does it feel the most impossible to rejoice? When are we tempted most to doubt God's goodness and his wisdom and his grace towards us. It's in suffering, isn't it? It's when the hard trials of life smack us in the face. And God knows that. And that's why he says what he says next. Look at verse three. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How in the world can Paul say this? Isn't that absurd? If you've been through suffering, doesn't that make you want to punch Paul in the face? But notice what he doesn't say next. He doesn't say, we rejoice in sufferings because of what we feel. That would be absurd. He doesn't say we rejoice in sufferings because of what we see. That would also be absurd. But he says that we rejoice in sufferings because of what we know. And what do we know? Knowing that suffering produces. Christian, how often do you hold on to the knowledge that your suffering is doing something when you're in the midst of it? Doesn't that feel almost impossible to hold on to sometimes? And yet, I think we all want to believe this, don't we? 
that our suffering isn't actually meaningless. Maybe you've been through times of suffering and you find yourself asking God, saying, God, please let this not be in vain. Let this be for a purpose. Don't let this be meaningless. It's a deep human longing we all have that our suffering wouldn't be meaningless. So then what does it produce? Look at verse three. Look at this sequence, this chain of events. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Let me just run through this really quick, because I think each word here matters tremendously about how we think about suffering. The word suffering gives the idea of pressure. The Greek word for suffering gives the idea of pressure here. Think of a, a heavy barbell on your back, and with weights on either side, and it's pushing through your neck and your spine, down through your legs to the ground. It's putting pressure on you. It's heavy. This word endurance is actually a compound word. I'm not saying it to impress you, but it's literally hupo mone. Hupo just means under. Mone means remain. It's literally to remain under, to remain under pressure. Suffering produces within us staying power. If you've ever done plank, you've done one of the worst exercises known to man. They are awful. But you know what this feels like, that when you get down in that plank position on your elbows and your feet, you feel that pressure. And everyone around you knows you feel that pressure because your whole body starts shaking uncontrollably. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's deeply humbling. But the first time you do that, you're probably only going to be able to hold it for 20, maybe 30 seconds. But as you continue to do it over and over again, you start to be able to last longer. You go a minute a minute and a half, two minutes. And that's what suffering does to us. It places a pressure on us. It, suffering produces the, Christ, the muscle of Christian faith. It causes us to lean on God in ways that are unfamiliar, in ways that we normally don't in our everyday life. But we don't just suffer for, just for the purpose of endurance. Look what it produces. It produces character. Character here is simply the, the idea of putting a metal into a furnace to test if it's genuine. That when the dross falls and drips off, you have their pure gold or silver or whatever it is. And that's the idea here, that when we go through sufferings, it puts a pressure on us. It makes us sit in it when we drop anchor instead of abandoning ship. And what that does is it produces a character that wouldn't come otherwise through easy, normal life circumstances. And when we see that character, when we see that God's actually doing something in our suffering, what does it do? produces hope. And now we've come full circle, right? That the things, that the times in life that are so easy for us to doubt in God and in his goodness are actually the very instrument God uses to instilling hope in us. That he uses suffering to wean us off of the affections and the love of the world and give us and invite us into a longing for the world to come. That's what his suffering does. Not only is our as a status of justified, changed the way we now relate to God, but it's changed the way we even relate to the world and everyday experiences. Now, if you have any doubt at this point still that this hope is good and it's guaranteed and it won't disappoint you and it won't put you to shame, Paul is going to destroy any of those notions next. And I love this next portion because I think it hits on something that we all experience. See, Christians, for honest, we don't, we don't lose sight most often of the riches that are in Christ because of intellectual reasons, right? We're, it's not like as soon as we leave this place, we're confronted with a superior, higher, more convincing argument. And we're like, wow, I've never thought of it that way. I don't need to trust Christ. That's not how that works. 
It's, it's primarily emotional, isn't it? That we feel our way through lives, our lives a lot more often than we'd probably like to admit. Right, that we begin to feel like God feels about me how I tend to feel about others. That maybe God doesn't even want to save me. Maybe God doesn't even want to give me this good hope. Maybe he's just kind of contractually obligated. I mean, he did send his son to die. He's kind of in for it now, isn't it? He's kind of stuck with me. We can begin to feel that God, although he says he wants to be close, there's actually separation. There's actually distance. He doesn't really care about us. Paul destroys that argument, and God exposes the inner parts of his heart. This next portion is almost the John 3.16 of Romans, okay? So let's take a look at it. We're going to see God root his hope, this hope that we have, in his love for us. He's going to give us a subjective expression of his hope, of his love, and an objective expression of his love. First, let's look at the subjective expression. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The certainty of our hope as Christians is not on our goodness. It's not on, our, on how deep and long-lasting our faith is. It's not even in our love for God, but it's on His love for us, right? And look where He's shown this love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God loves you and me so much that he implants himself into the deepest parts of who we are when we become Christians. But even, let me draw your eyes to this word poured. When we read it in English, it seems like it's just a past tense thing that's happened in in time and history. But actually in Greek, this word is in the uh, perfect tense. Now, most of us here probably are not freshened up on our Greek grammar and syntax. So, When he talks about the perfect tense, it's primarily something that has happened in the past but has enduring results in the present. So not only, so what does this mean? This means that not only God has poured into into our hearts his love when we were saved, when we were justified, when we were given the Holy Spirit, but there's a continual overflow, outflow, a permanent flow of God's love into our hearts even now. And we don't have time to go into, what does that look like? And what does that feel like? And when do I experience that as a Christian? But Christians... You've experienced this, haven't you? There have been times in your life when you've just been overwhelmed and overcome of God's love for you. That God would love you and me. Doesn't that just blow your casket sometimes? But we don't always feel that way, do we, Christians? In fact, some of us would even say that those can kind of seem rare more than they are common. So then what do we do when we don't feel like God loves us? when we don't feel rich in Christ, what do we do? And for that, God has given us an objective expression of his love. Look at verse six. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, when we were weak, when we were unable to save ourselves, at the right time, at the time of our greatest need, Christ died for us, us ungodly people. Paul draws this out more using the next verse. Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So you see what Paul's doing? He's comparing Christ's willingness to die for us with our willingness to die for others. And and Paul admits, you know, there, 
there's heroes among us. There's heroes out there. There's people who are willing to die for others. We could probably, you know, count a few people that we'd be willing to die for. And yet the people we're willing to die for are the ones that we normally deem worth it, don't we? As Paul says in this passage, they're the, the righteous and the good by our standards. That it's, it's noble to die for a righteous person, isn't it? It's noble to lay your life down for the president or someone like that. And, a, and on this backdrop, Paul drops a bomb on us in verse 8. Look at this. But God shows his love for us. Stop right there for a minute. Do you know what this means? This means that God cares about how you think about him. That it matters to him. He's passionate that you know that he loves you. He's not satisfied with vain and lowly thoughts of our love or his love for us. Parents, you can probably handle it if your child were to doubt your strength, right? You could probably handle it if your child even doubts your wisdom. But can you imagine if your child were to doubt your love? What would that do to your heart? John Owen, an English Puritan, once wrote this, that the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is not believe that He loves you. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He loves me. You know, a lot of times that can even feel just very superficial, can't it? Because a lot of times we want to measure God's love for us based on other standards. Primarily the standard of how we feel in our lives, right? We have this, this hypothetical scale and on one side of the scale we put all the ways we feel like God's blessed us. And then on the other side of the scale, we want to put all the ways we feel like God's cursed us. And we just want to see how it measures out. We say, oh, God doesn't love me. God loves me. God doesn't love me. God, God loves me a little bit. He doesn't really love me that much. And we go through life that way, don't we? It's kind of like a ping pong ball, just bouncing back and forth between in and out of God's love. So how, but that's a very self-centered way to think of God's love, isn't it? Because we don't even do that in other relationships, do we? So how do we then measure God's love? Let me offer you three metrics, okay? First, we measure love by looking at the greatness of the lover compared to the unworthiness of the loved one. Look at verse eight. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. You've probably noticed if you've been paying attention that we are not painted in that great of a light in this passage. In verse six, we were called weak and ungodly. Here, we're called sinners. And later in verse 10, we're called enemies. Guys, if you're going on a date anytime soon, don't lead with that, okay? That's dating advice from the young adults guy. Don't, don't jump in two feet with that, okay? But doesn't this expose the expanse between us and Christ? You know, we love those, those Disney classic movies, don't we, where there's a high and exalted prince and he's regal and, and full of authority and, and power and dignity. And he sets his affections and his love on a lowly servant girl who's scrubbing floors and has ugly stepsisters. And our hearts are drawn in because the magnitude of their love is displayed in the distance that's between them, right? 
that one has so much higher of a status than the other, so much more value and worth than the other. And it does something to us. We love seeing that. And how much greater distance is there between us and God? He's divine. We're mortal. He is the creator. We are the created. That would be enough. But he's perfect and pure, and we're rebellious, ungodly sinners. How much love the Father has for us. Look at the, or the next metric by which we determine or we measure love is we look at how far the lover is willing to go for the loved one. Steve Heron's been preaching these past few weeks on the incarnation. And if you've been able to listen to them, they've been fantastic. We've been able to see the heart of God, the humility of God, and just seeing how far God was willing to go by adding on human form and by becoming a man, that he would go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. But then even then, he didn't just hide away in a palace somewhere, right? No, he was with us and among us. That's what makes the, the, Christian, or the Christmas season so special, is Emmanuel, God with us. He endured tremendous suffering, worse suffering than any of us ever experienced. He experienced greater degrees of temptation than any of us have ever experienced. He was with us because he loved us, because he loves us. Then the third metric we measure love by is by seeing how much the lover is willing to give up for the loved one. Look at verse 8 again. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you and me, Christian, so much that he gave up his life for us, that he gave up his son for us. So don't measure God's love for you based on how you feel like your life is kind of going in and out, but measure God's love for you by looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let that be the objective standard that whenever you doubt that maybe God doesn't really love me that much, look to Christ, look to the cross where he poured out his very blood to have you. He expresses his, the eternal nature of this love later in Romans 8 in a famous passage that I'm sure a few of us know. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, hold on to that. Your peace with God will never change. Your access and your standing in God's grace will never change. Your hope and the glory of God will never change. God's love for you will never change. So these are just some of the riches that we have in Christ. And up to this point, Paul's primarily drawn our eyes to present benefits, right? These are things that we get to enjoy now. So what he's going to do next is he's actually going to take our eyes off of current benefits and he's going to put them on future benefits, things that we get to look forward to. He's going to show us primarily two. He's going to show us what we're saved from and then what we're saved to. So look at verse 9 with me. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more. If you circle in your Bible, circle that phrase right there, much more. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
At this point, we've already talked about how, uh, how we're not currently under God's wrath. But what about, the, what about in the end? What about when Christ returns? What about when we all stand before God? What's going to happen on that moment? Well, those who have not repented and not trusted in Christ, they will receive the issue of condemnation before a holy God. But for those of us who have bowed the knee to Christ, who have given our allegiance to Him and, and trusted Him and our affections upon Him, we will receive the good news, the good issue of justified, not guilty. And I think we as Christians have become so accustomed to this message, haven't we? That we've, yeah, I know that, Jonathan. I know that I won't be under the full wrath of God for all of eternity. How does that really help me now? I don't think we ever really go so far as to really meditate on this. So just think about this with me. Think. Think how unbelievably gracious God would be if he only poured out his wrath on us for a thousand years. That's far more than we deserve. We have committed an infinite offense against the holy God of the universe, worthy of infinite wrath. God would be unspeakably, unimaginably gracious if he only poured out his wrath on us for 10 years. But God is so gracious and so good and so loving to us that he poured out all of his wrath down to the very last drop on Christ. For what purpose? so that we experience none of it, none of it. We will not experience God's wrath, but only his abundant, merciful grace. So that's what we're saved from. What are we saved to? Look at verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more. See that phrase again? Circle it if you do. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath. Oh, sorry, I read the same verse. <clears throat> Come on, guys, help me out. Call me out on that. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, there it is, circle that. Now that we are reconciled, we shall, be, shall we be saved by his life. So notice Paul has shifted from justification to reconciliation. He shifted images of salvation here. So justification gives the picture of being counted as righteous before a judge. Reconciliation gives the picture of being brought back into friendship. It's kind of what we talked about in verse one, of being at peace with God. So now, not only are we counted as righteous before the judge, but we're the friend of the king. And those who are friends of the king will never lose his friendship. Look at the second half of verse 10 again. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Have you seen the logic in these past two verses? It's it's inescapable. That if God was willing to do this great, hard thing in saving us by the death of his son, certainly won't he do this simpler thing in saving us to the end and keeping us from his wrath? That if while we were enemies, God made us friends by the death of Christ, now that we're friends, won't he keep us his friends by the life of Christ? Uh, Jesus talks about this in John 14. So flip over to John 14 with me. I want to show you this from the life of Christ and see from his very words how secure you are in him. In John 13, so one chapter before John 14, John 13, we see some, of the, some very big events in the life of Christ. We see Jesus humbly wash his disciples' feet. We see... Uh, 
we see Judas run out of the room to go and hand over Jesus to the authorities. And we see Jesus tell Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. And Peter even says, Jesus, I will die for you. And in that moment, I just wanna, I wonder if Jesus like, you're gonna die for me, Peter, really? I'm gonna die for you. So that's what leads us into chapter 14. And look at verse one, chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So how did Jesus go to prepare a place for us? Through the cross, right? By going to the cross, by doing this, by giving this unbelievable sacrifice of his own blood, he made a way for us to become right with God. And if he has done that, look what he says he'll do next. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul says later. That because Jesus has gone to the nth degree to have his people, what we get is we get to share in his life. We get to share in, the, in his resurrection life. We get to enjoy that with him. Not just now, not just tomorrow, but for all eternity. That's what we get to look forward to. That's part of the hope that we have as Christians. Now flip back to Romans 5. <clears throat> so Paul has kind of taken us on a journey here. He's kind of taken us up a mountain. And each step along the way, he's shown us another of our riches in Christ. He's shown us that we have peace with God. He's shown us that we have access and standing in grace. He's shown us that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He's shown us that we can rejoice even in our sufferings. He's shown us that we are assured of God's love for us. And he's shown us what awaits us, not God's wrath, but eternal life. So how would you end this passage? What do you expect to find at the pinnacle of this mountain? I think verse 11 is one of the most fitting verses in your Bible. I can't think of a better way to end this passage. Look at verse 11. More than that, more than what? Everything we've talked about, all the riches that we have in Christ, more than these, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christians, we ought to be some of the most joyful people in the world. Look at what we've received. Look at how our relationship to God has changed. Look at how our relationship with the world has changed. Look at what riches we have in Christ. And in my experience, uh, and even reading in Scripture, we primarily see this phrase rejoicing in God as a command, don't we? We're like, I just need to rejoice in God more. I'm like, come on, brother, rejoice in God. What are you doing? Rejoice, look at all you've been given. Don't be sad, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But Paul doesn't list it here as a command. He lists it here as a benefit. It's a fruit of our justification. It's another rich treasure that we have in Christ. And I wonder if one of the reasons why we don't rejoice because of what we received in Christ on a day-to-day -day basis because we don't actually recognize what a treasure that is to us. Let me go even deeper. We don't even recognize to the full extent what the treasure that God is. He is our highest good. 
He is the sum and substance of all the benefits of the gospel. He's the source of all of the benefits of the gospel. He is the ultimate benefit of the gospel. And because what he says in this verse that we've been reconciled through our Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? It means now we get him. Or or better yet, he gets us. Uh, this, This phrase, rejoice in God, Paul's actually used elsewhere in the book of Romans. He used it back in chapter 2 in verse 17, and he, and he talks about uh, how the Jews boast in God. He's actually using this as an indictment towards them. Because how did the Jews boast in God? They boasted that they were the sole possessors of him, right? They had a monopoly on God, in a sense. No one could boast of what the Jews could boast, for, boast about. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had the patriarchs, they had the traditions, they had the temple, they had all of these rich traditions. So they boasted. But we as Christians know that, that our boasting in God, our rejoicing in God is completely different, isn't it? We don't rejoice that we possess God, that He possesses us. We don't rejoice that we hold on to God, but that He holds on to us. We don't even boast in our promises to God, but, that he, but in His promises to us. Not in our privileges, but in His mercies. That's what we get to boast in. So, I hope you can see by the end of this passage that rejoicing in God is really a gift that only the righteous can enjoy. Christians, we have a tremendous wealth of riches in Christ, don't we? No one else can claim these. So that should make us want to go forth to them, right? With the good news of Christ. That you can get and gain all these riches, but that message is only going to be so appealing as if they actually see real, true, genuine joy in us. That these riches that we have in Christ actually take root in our heart. And my, my prayer leading up to this as I was preparing for this passage is that we would be a church that's joyful. That when people talk about Soto Square, they're talking about a church that's filled with abundant joy. Church, let's be a people that rejoices in all that we have. That not only that, but we help each other and we remind each other of the joy that we can have in Christ. Let us be people that labor for the joy of our brothers and sisters and labor for the joy of all peoples. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you've given us in Christ. We can never thank you enough. We will actually thank you for all of eternity because of the infinite wealth of riches that you've given us. God, we praise your name. We herald you. We glorify you. And God, we ask that the things that so often come and stumble us and steal our joy, whether they're valid or not, God, we ask that you would overcome them with the glorious riches of your gospel. That we would be people who are always reminded that Jesus said in John 17 that he prays for our joy. And God, let us be people that mimic that. That because we've received such abundant joy because of what we've received, that we can go and give that to others. God, let us be a people that are heralds of your joy to those who have never heard, but also in here amongst the family at Citadel Square. That we would be people that fight for the joy of one another. So that you can be glorified. So that you can be held high. So that we can continue to find deeper and deeper treasures and plumb the depths of the joy that's available for us in you. 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen.